Douglas Moo's interpretation of Galatians 6.11.18 offers a detailed insight into the unique structure and thematic elements of this passage. Unlike typical endings in Paul's letters, which often include greetings, travel plans, and doxologies, Galatians concludes differently. This deviation is intentional, reflecting the urgent and critical nature of the issues facing the Galatian church. Mu emphasizes that this ending should not be overlooked, as it contains key theological insights that are essential for understanding the letter as a whole. Central to the passage is the concept of Christians being crucified to the world, which implies a profound separation from worldly values and practices. This idea aligns with the theme of living in a new creation, marking a distinct transition from the old age dominated by sin and law to a new era initiated by Christ's death and resurrection. Paul positions believers as part of the new Israel, a community defined by faith in Christ rather than adherence to the law. Mu notes the passage's concentric structure, with Paul's own signature and a wish for grace framing the content. This structure accentuates the central themes of the passage, the stark contrast between the agitators and Paul, and the transformative power of the cross of Christ. The agitators are depicted as self-serving, focusing on physical marks like circumcision, while Paul affirms spiritual transformation and his own suffering for Christ. This contrast asserts the shift from worldly concerns to spiritual realities. In sum, Moo's analysis reveals the depth of Paul's message in Galatians. The letter's unconventional ending serves not just as a conclusion, but as a summary of its central arguments, urging the Galatian Christians to embrace their new identity in Christ and reject the false teachings of the agitators. This passage, therefore, is crucial for understanding the overarching theological and eschatological themes of Galatians. Moreover, Mu examines the Apostle Paul's peculiar mention of writing with large letters. This passage is significant because it provides insight into the writing practices of the New Testament era, particularly concerning the roles of authors and their scribes, known as amanuenses. Paul's assertion of writing in large letters is curious and has led scholars to explore various explanations. Mu highlights that in ancient letter writing, it was customary for authors to dictate their letters to a scribe. This practice is evident in the New Testament, as seen in Romans 16.22, where Tertius identifies himself as the scribe for Paul's letter. Based on this understanding, Mu, along with most scholars, suggests that Paul himself likely wrote only a portion of Galatians 6.11.18 by hand. This act of personally writing the closing part of the letter would serve as a form of authentication, a practice also noted in other Pauline epistles like 2 Thessalonians 3.17 and Philemon 19. The discussion then turns to the reasons behind Paul's use of large letters. Three theories are proposed. First, Paul may have been unskilled in writing, leading to awkwardly large letters. Second, Paul's possibly failing eyesight, hinted at in Galatians 4.13, 15. Might have necessitated larger writing for visibility. Third, and most widely accepted among scholars, is the idea that Paul used large letters for emphasis, similar to using a bold font today. Ancient writing practices sometimes included using larger letters for emphasis, lending credence to this theory. Despite these hypotheses, Mu acknowledges the speculative nature of these theories. 
He indicates that if emphasis were the sole reason, it is unclear why Paul did not consistently use large letters for other important points in his writings. In conclusion, while the theories provide interesting possibilities, the exact reason for Paul's use of large letters in Galatians 6 remains elusive. Furthermore, Mu delves into the motives and tactics of the agitators opposing Apostle Paul. Mu identifies two primary aspects of Paul's critique. First, the agitators' agenda and personal failings, and second, their underlying motives. The agitators, as Mu explains, are pressuring the Galatian Christians to adhere to Jewish customs, specifically circumcision. This insistence isn't out of a genuine adherence to the law, as they themselves are not fully keeping it. Mu maintains the agitators' preoccupation with external appearances. They aim to make a good showing in the flesh, signifying a focus on outward, physical signs of piety rather than an internal, spiritual transformation. This reflects a superficial understanding of religious practice, prioritizing societal acceptance and personal prestige over genuine faith. Mu examines the Greek terms used by Paul, especially Sark's flesh, and euprosopesai, to make a good showing, pointing out their significance in understanding the agitator's motives. The term Sark's, while referring to physical flesh in the context of circumcision, also conveys a broader theological meaning related to human weakness and susceptibility to sin. This dual meaning reiterates the agitator's focus on physical rituals and their neglect of deeper spiritual implications. In addition, Mu interprets Paul's words as a pointed critique of the agitator's strategy to avoid persecution. By insisting on circumcision and Mosaic law adherence, they were attempting to mitigate Jewish opposition to the message of Christ. Mu suggests that their actions were less about religious conviction and more about self-preservation and appeasement of Jewish authorities. This approach is contrasted with Paul's message, which centers on faith in Christ alone as the basis for salvation, challenging traditional Jewish beliefs and practices. In summary, Mu's analysis of Galatians 6.12.13 presents a nuanced understanding of the conflict in the early Christian community. It repeats the tension between outward religious conformity and the radical message of salvation through faith in Christ, a theme that is central to Paul's teachings. Further, Mu dives into the motivations and identities of the so-called agitators, as described by Apostle Paul. These agitators are pressing Gentile Christians to undergo circumcision, a practice that Paul criticizes as inconsistent and driven by ulterior goals. In this passage, Paul uses the term peritemnomenoi, which translates to those who are being circumcised, referencing the agitators. Mu debates whether this term refers to Gentile converts in the process of circumcision or to the agitators themselves. He rules out the former due to the broader context which indicates the agitators were indeed Jewish. The participle peritemnomenoi is deemed to indicate not the action of being circumcised, but rather the state of being so, aligning with the understanding that the agitators are part of a circumcision group or party. The analysis then turns to why Paul suggests these agitators do not truly keep the law, nomon fula susen, despite their advocacy for it. Mu explores several interpretations. The agitators' geographic distance from Jerusalem may hinder their full observance of the law. They may lack rigor in their observance. 
They could be hypocritical in preaching what they do not practice, or they might fail to understand the law's ultimate purpose pointing to Christ. Mu, however, leans towards a reading where Paul's accusation resonates with a broader critique found in Romans 2, in which he reproaches the Jewish audience for not genuinely adhering to the law they claim to venerate. Besides, Paul rebukes the agitators for wanting to boast about the flesh of the Galatians, ina ente umetelra sarki kukisontai. Mu notes that this refers to the literal flesh affected by circumcision, but may also allude to the agitators' endorsement of outdated values. The agitators' desire to take credit for circumcising the Galatians signifies their pursuit of honor through the physical transformation of others, and represents a moral misalignment, celebrating the physical act rather than the spiritual significance it signifies. Mu captures the essence of Paul's critique as underlining the importance of consistent and sincere adherence to the law's spirit rather than mere compliance with its letter. Additionally, Mu dives into the profound contrast between the boasting of the agitators, those opposing Paul's teachings, and Paul's own source of pride, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his commentary, Mu underscores that while boasting about the cross might seem familiar to modern Christians for the ancient readers of Paul's time, the idea would have been jarring. Crucifixion was associated with a humiliating and torturous death, something to be shunned, not celebrated. Despite the negative connotations of crucifixion in the Greco-Roman world, for Paul, the cross represents something far more significant, a transformative event. The cross was not merely a method of execution, it was the instrument of Christ's victory over sin and death. Through the crucifixion of Jesus, God accomplished the reconciliation of humanity to himself. Paul's use of the word crucified in the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, symbolizes a severing of ties with a world ruled by sin and evil, a world that is fading away, characterized by misplaced values and allegiances. Mu examines the language and imagery used by Paul, indicating a deliberate choice to reflect a decisive break with the present evil age that Paul references earlier in Galatians. The term world is understood within Paul's apocalyptic perspective, representing a cosmic domain subject to corruption, in opposition to God's new creation brought about through the cross. Crucially, Mu emphasizes that Paul's boasting is not about personal experiences, but about the redemptive act of Christ. Paul sees believers, including himself, as participants in the death of Christ, co-crucified with him. This participation signifies a deliverance from the world's detrimental grip and absolves believers from any obligation to the worldly realm's demands, in sum, the cross for Paul represents the end of the old and the inauguration of the new. The crucifixion of Jesus is a harbinger of truth, bringing forth a new way of life shaped by godly values and a divinely oriented allegiance. Mu suggests that Paul's message is one where the cross stands as a radical inversion of values, where shame turns into glory and death into the means for true life. Also, Mu articulates that in Galatians 6.15, Paul accentuates a revolutionary change in the Christian's relationship with traditional Jewish law, specifically the practice of circumcision. Paul's language affirms that physical circumcision, once central to the identity of the Jewish people and their covenant with God, and uncircumcision, identifying Gentiles, 
have lost their definitive importance in the context of Christ's transformative work. This diminishing is echoed in earlier sections of Galatians 5.6 and in 1 Corinthians 7.19, where Paul contrasts the irrelevance of these physical signs with the genuine value of faith expressed in love and adherence to God's commands. Mu interprets neither circumcision nor uncircumcision as a Pauline slogan representing outdated value systems that are superseded by the new creation in Christ. The concept of the new creation does not simply revolve around the individual believer's spiritual renewal, but broadly signifies the new reality ushered in by Christ's death and resurrection, an end to the primacy of ethnic, social, and gender divisions. In examining the term new creation, Mu notes that although it does not appear in the Old Testament, it is a principal theme within Jewish texts, where it often signifies a comprehensive end-times transformation. This apocalyptic expectation is mirrored and set into motion in Christian eschatology through Jesus' resurrection, marking the beginning of God's transformative work. The new creation is therefore intrinsic to Christian identity, indicating a state of existence defined by the redemptive act of Christ rather than by adherence to the Jewish law. It incites a cosmic-scale reformation reaching beyond individual and communal transformations to encompass the entire cosmos. Mu uses this framework to suggest that Paul contrasts the limited scope of change promoted by the Galatia agitators with the absolute, all-encompassing change, the newness, wrought by the cross and exemplified in the idea of the new creation. Moreover, Mu discusses how the Apostle Paul concludes his letter with a promise of peace and mercy that is notably conditional. This is unusual compared to other epistles where Paul's endorsements of peace are often unconditional. The promise is reserved for those who follow this rule, which aligns with the grave concerns Paul has for the Galatian Christians and their wavering faith, prohibiting him from simply extending peace without qualification. The rule, Paul mentions, is interpreted by Mu to refer to the concept of a new creation from verse 15b, asserting elements central to the Christian life in the new era inaugurated by Christ. These elements include the Holy Spirit's activity, faith in Christ, and the love that emerges from faith. Paul contrasts the values of this new creation, which are spiritually oriented, with those of the old world that include the flesh, circumcision, and adherence to the Mosaic law. Only by living according to the new values can believers experience the fullness of God's peace and mercy. Furthermore, Mu digs into the biblical understanding of peace which is rooted in the Old Testament and widely anticipated as part of the messianic promise. Mercy, though less frequently mentioned, is linked closely with peace and carries significant theological weight within the New Testament. The phrasing peace upon them and mercy suggests a double blessing, but with an unusual order and structure, implying that the recipients might be two distinct groups, those who adhere to the rule and an entity referred to as the Israel of God. The identity of the Israel of God is debated among scholars. Through a close examination of syntax, biblical usage, and the broader context of Galatians, Mu contends for an interpretation that sees this reference as inclusive of all believers, both Jew and Gentile, who walk according to the new standard set by Christ.
Paul's message in these verses presents a profound vision for the faithful, living as removed from the corrupt influences of the world, engaging actively in God's new creation, and redefining themselves as a part of God's people centered around Jesus the Messiah. The transformative power of the cross demands believers to align themselves with this new, redemptive reality, V16a, essentially redefining their existence according to God's kingdom values. In addition, Mu offers a nuanced interpretation of the Apostle Paul's words and the profound personal implications therein. This verse marks a pivotal moment where Paul shifts focus back to addressing the agitators, individuals whose teachings were disrupting the early Christian communities. Mu highlights the phrase tuloipu, interpreting it as a temporal marker that translates to from now on. This interpretation indicates Paul's desire to move past the conflicts and troubles brought on by these agitators. Paul's plea, let no one cause me trouble, corpus moimedes paraketo, is critical to understanding his state of mind. Mu suggests that while this request is directly aimed at the agitators, it implicitly extends to the Galatian Christians themselves. Paul feels a profound sense of responsibility for these believers and understands that the agitator's influence can be diminished if the Galatians stop heeding their teachings. The core of Mu's analysis lies in the examination of Paul's statement about bearing the marks of Jesus on his body, ego, ta stigmata to yesu en, to somati mu bastazo. Mu examines the historical and cultural significance of the term stigmata, which refers to physical marks. In Paul's context, these marks likely represent scars from his persecutions, symbolizing his dedication to Christ. These physical scars contrast starkly with the ceremonial mark of circumcision, central to the letter's discourse. Mu proposes that Paul views these scars as more than just symbols of his suffering. They are powerful testimonies of his commitment to Jesus and his ministry. This perspective challenges the emphasis placed on physical rights like circumcision by the agitators. In essence, Paul's scars serve as authentic markers of his identity in Christ, surpassing any traditional or ceremonial sign. Through Mu's interpretation, we see a vivid picture of Paul's deep commitment and the personal sacrifices inherent in his apostolic journey. Further, Mu provides a deeper insight into the concluding part of the epistle. This verse, which features Paul's customary grace wish, is a distinctive element found at the end of all his letters. Mu maintains the significance of this literary feature, noting that it serves to circle back to the formal focus that marks the beginning of the letter's conclusion. In Galatians, as in several other epistles, the grace mentioned is intricately connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. This connection indicates that the grace referred to is inherently related to Christ, pointing out the Christocentric nature of Paul's theology. The specific phrase with your spirit in this verse is notable for its rarity, appearing only here and in 2 Timothy 4.22 in Paul's writings. This phrase adds a personal and spiritual dimension to the grace wish, suggesting a deeper communion with the spirit of the believers. Another unique aspect in this grace wish, as reiterated by Mu, is the inclusion of brothers and sisters. This addition is significant as it repeats the unity and familial bond among the believers, irrespective of their ethnic backgrounds. This is particularly poignant in the context of Galatians, where Paul addresses issues surrounding Gentile and Jewish believers. 
By referring to both groups collectively as a spiritual family, Paul reinforces the message of unity and inclusivity central to the Christian faith. Mu underlines the theological importance of this grace wish in the context of the entire letter. He references Martin, 1997, who posits that the blessings in verses 616 and 618, coupled with the final Amen, are not just a communication from Paul, but a divine engagement. This interpretation suggests that the letter's message transcends its human author, Paul, connecting the readers directly with God's will and purpose. This perspective underscores the spiritual and theological depth of the letter's conclusion, linking it back to the overarching themes of grace, unity, and divine engagement present throughout the epistle. Last but not least, Mu provides a detailed analysis of its unique aspects within the broader context of Paul's epistolary style. Unlike other Pauline letters, Galatians 6 conspicuously lacks several customary elements in its closing sections. Typical features such as Paul's travel plans, requests for prayers and greetings from associates, commonly found in other letters, are absent here. Instead, Galatians 6 includes a prayer wish for peace, 616, a personal autograph from Paul, 611, a poignant warning or exhortation, 612-15-17, an eschatological wish or promise, 616, and a concluding grace, 618. These elements, while present in various forms, in other Pauline letters, emphasize the distinctiveness of Galatians. Mu explores the manuscript variations and their significance for interpreting Galatians 6. In verse 12, he discusses the debate over the use of indicative versus subjunctive verb forms, accentuating a likely early textual corruption. Additionally, Mu examines variations in the phrase cross of Christ, noting that some manuscripts add Jesus after Christ, but he suggests that Paul's original wording likely did not include Jesus. The discussion about circumcision in verse 13 is enriched by examining the nuances between present and perfect participles. Mu interprets these differences as reflecting the ongoing debate about circumcision among early Christians. Besides, in verse 15, Mu observes an assimilation to Galatians 5, 6 in the manuscript tradition, both at the beginning of the verse and in the word choice, Isque, replacing Estin. Verse 16's manuscript variation concerning the verb form, future indicative present or aorist subjunctive, in the first clause is affirmed, with Mu noting the strongest support for the future indicative. Finally, in verse 17, he discusses the variations in the name following the marks of, with the choices between Jesus and Christ being most plausible, considering the external manuscript support. Through this analytical approach, Mu not only asserts the distinct nature of Galatians 6 within Paul's writings, but also sheds light on the complexities of textual variations and their implications for biblical interpretation. In conclusion, Mu's interpretation of Galatians 6.11, 18 sheds light on the unique structure and themes of this passage, distinct from typical endings in Paul's letters. Mu points out the urgency reflected in this deviation, signifying the critical issues facing the Galatian church. The passage's core concept is Christian separation from worldly values, depicted through the metaphor of being crucified to the world. This aligns with the theme of living in a new creation, signifying a shift from an age dominated by sin and law to a new era initiated by Christ's death and resurrection. 
Additionally, central to Mu's analysis is the contrast between the agitator's focus on physical circumcision and Paul's emphasis on spiritual transformation and suffering for Christ. This highlights a shift from worldly concerns to spiritual realities. Also, Mu delves into the Apostle Paul's peculiar mention of writing with large letters, exploring theories regarding Paul's possible lack of writing skill, failing eyesight, or the use of large letters for emphasis. Moreover, Mu scrutinizes the motives of the agitators who prioritize outward physical signs of piety over internal spiritual transformation. He suggests their actions are driven more by self-preservation and appeasing Jewish authorities than by religious conviction. This superficial understanding of religious practice contrasts starkly with Paul's message centering on faith in Christ alone as the basis for salvation. Furthermore, Mu discusses the transformation represented by the cross of Christ, which for Paul signifies victory over sin and death. This perspective inverts traditional values, turning shame into glory. In addition, Mu explains how Paul's language in Galatians 6.15 represents a significant shift in the relationship with Jewish law, particularly concerning circumcision. The new creation brought about by Christ supersedes traditional divisions and rituals. Lastly, Mu examines how Paul concludes his letter with a conditional promise of peace and mercy, reflecting the grave concerns for the Galatian Christians. This promise, tied to living according to the new values of faith and love in Christ, contrasts with the values of the old world. Mu's interpretation presents a nuanced understanding of Paul's critique, emphasizing the importance of consistent and sincere adherence to the law's spirit and the transformative power of Christ's death and resurrection.